Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. All righty. Happy Thursday. How are you doing? My name is Andrew Kuhn. Thank you so much for tuning in with us here today. Mr. Jeff Gannon, how's it going over there? It's going great, Andrew. How's it going with you? It is going great with me. We hope everybody has had a great week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Also want to say thank you so much to the rating reviews that everyone's yes. been giving us. Mm-hmm. I've been pounding the table asking, and uh, <laughs> I really appreciate everybody for doing that. That definitely helps us out here. Um, helps keep the lights on, mm-hmm. as they say. Because so. we charge so much for the uh, podcast. Because we charge so much. If you're listening to us on iTunes and you have Spotify, you want to listen to us there, we're on Spotify now. Mm-hmm. Took us only about a year, but... Like yep. I said, better late than never, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so Spotify and iTunes, and we announced last podcast, we're also going to be on YouTube. We will, yeah. And that's username is Focused Compounding. There's podcasts that are on there. got to upload the rest, but we are going to do some sort of video content. Uh, I haven't exactly found out or figured out exactly what yet. Like I said, we may do how-to videos or um, different things on investing, but you can be expecting some content there going forward. Yeah, so, so they can go to Focus Compounding on YouTube and subscribe. Yep, and that's right. Yeah. So um, today we're going to be going over some more questions that people have asked of us. Um, like I said, it's a pretty good content creator for us, and we get to answer what a lot of people um, have on their mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first question is, it says, is there a place in an investor's portfolio for lower returning investments that you have a high degree of confidence in receiving that return with low risk? And he says, for example, Berkshire, Hathaway, and Disney. Mm-hmm. Let's say you expect those investments to return 8% per year, but there's like a 90% probability of that occurring while your standard investment goal is 10% annualized. Is there a place for that in the portfolio? Um, there might be if you can lower your goal or uh, if you can't find anything else that has those sorts of returns and you think that's going to continue to be the case. Um, you know, for me, that's not the way that I look at it because I'm worried always about um, buying into a too, a too expensive market, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel that most times people say, well, this is all the returns that you're going to get. From now on, you have to adjust down to thinking in terms of, you know, that you're only going to make 7% a year or whatever from these things, um, that uh, there's never going to be an opportunity to buy other stocks uh, that have, you know, double-digit type returns. Um, It turns out that eventually stock prices come down and then you you can do that. Um, I mean, people said that a lot right before the financial crisis, a lot. If if you read a lot of things that I wrote and what people talked about in 2006, 2007, it's a lot of that stuff is, you know, no one's expecting any sort of crash or anything, but they're expecting low returns for a long time into the future. And uh, that's not what happened. Instead, you had a crash and then you had high returns for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I think that you have to um, be realistic about your uh, targets that you have that way. I mean, I think it's the same thing with like a pension fund. Uh, And you're saying, you know, 8% is a low... um, uh, is a low um, sort of discount rate. It's a low rate to expect long-term for something. I'm not sure that it is 
right mm-hmm. now. And I think you might have to lower your expectations to that level, certainly, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you've talked about in the past, actually, where if you didn't have another idea for stock, and you mm-hmm. did this sort of in your earlier days, you just put in, like, the S&P 500, and then you just sort of backdoored that's it true. out as you found out different ideas. Mm-hmm. So well, I guess I a it's, teenager, technically, that's what I did, yep. it's technically still invested and not just sitting there, probably hopefully better than cash. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, but. and I think we said, you know, putting in Berkshire or something would make sense that way. Yeah, that's the way I would think yeah, about it. Yeah, if you want to save money, that you know, just consistently be saving money. You don't want the... For some people, it may not be a good idea to be out of the market in any way, you know, to be holding cash. That's a, maybe a bad habit to have long term. Mm-hmm. So I could see that. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Yeah. Um, okay. And then he kind of gives a follow up to that. He says, should you only ever invest in companies where their expected long term rate of return is higher than your required discount rate? In other words, is there a situation where that is justified either to gain additional diversification or because you lack investment prospects that exceed your required discount rate? Uh, yeah, so uh, I would say no, basically. Uh, I think you have to be realistic and either uh, you either have to drop your discount rate. So what we're talking about with the discount rate is you know, a hurdle rate that you have where you say it has that for me to invest in something, it has to be 10% a year or something yeah. as the return. And mm-hmm. if I don't do that, then I keep the money in cash, basically. Um, and I think the answer to that is you either have to accept that you have to change your discount rate if you can't find anything, um, or you have to... Uh, hold cash. You know, those are your only two options that way. Um, you know, for me personally, um, I don't adjust the discount rate down. Um, so we hold some cash in the manager accounts and that's always been what I've done. Um, sort of as a rule, I don't want to invest in things that I don't see a path to 10% a year while I hold it, even if I have to hold it for a long time. So is 10% typically your discount rate that you use? Okay. Yeah. So uh, that doesn't mean that I'm targeting 10% returns. Mm-hmm. It just means that no matter how much I like a stock, if I can't figure out how this is going to make me 10% a year, and when I say that, I mean holding it long-term or something, not uh, we can always imagine te- that it'll uh, go up 10% you know, this year because other people discovered or whatever. Yeah. You know, There's uh-huh. always that. What I mean is realistically, if you're going to hold this thing five years or more, you know, can you see 10% type returns in it? And if you don't, then you, you don't buy it. Um, and th- you know, that's always what I've done. Um, to try to be disciplined about it. The reason for that for me is that I think it's very easy to miscalculate uh, in terms of what you think something will return. And it's very easy to overpay for something by convincing yourself that, oh, it'll, you know, return 7% a year or whatever in when you're looking at like a, you know, a nifty 50 type stock or mm-hmm. something. And in reality, the PE ratio will collapse in half or something. You could have a large loss in the stock, things like that. Maybe if you held it forever and you're right about the stock, it'll work out. But in general, yeah, I would do that because otherwise you can start justifying very, very high P ratios. And there are a lot of stocks with very, very high P ratios mm-hmm. now that are good businesses, but you shouldn't buy them. Do you think Buffett back in the day, he what did he say that people should use for the discount rates? Wasn't it the 10-year bond or something like that? Yeah, but he paid attention. Rates to what, were totally different back then, yeah, right? Yeah, but pay attention to what Buffett does. Yeah. He's never know. paid a high price for anything, basically. Sure. He talks about it's know, like paying out quote. for things. Yeah, don't, don't pay attention to what he says. Uh, pay attention to what he and does. And what's he doing now? Holding lots and lots of cash. Yeah. So, yeah, no, he will pay up. What he means is he will pay up a lot for the Washington Post instead of uh, Dempster Mill, which he got at two-thirds of net current asset value. Mm-hmm. Instead, he bought Washington Post at, you know, premium to, like, you know, book value or whatever, but a big discount to what people would buy and sell the, the stock for in, uh, you know, private transactions, what they would buy the entire company for. I can't think of situations where he's paid really high prices for um, – a stock, what we would consider high prices, or things that would seem to have a very low discount rate, uh, to have a very low predicted rate of return. 
he's certainly been wrong about some things and that happens, but I, I don't think that he's gone into things expecting a really low um, return mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. Now, there are exceptions. I think he may, in some cases where they're using some form of borrowed money and things like that in a regulated utility. Um, so they've spent some money on the regulated utilities where that's definitely the case. And I wouldn't disagree with that, but I don't think that's really what the question's usually about. If you really had a regulated utility, if you really had an almost guaranteed um, return. Because regulated utility, it's not just that it's uh, protected from competition and stuff. It's that it's actually based on the expected return. Uh, the, the regulators are actually... Um, making the the pricing situation have to do with the allowable return on the assets. Um, so yeah, maybe there's a way if you looked at, you know, toll roads or uh, utilities or something like that. But even then, if you're not using borrowed money, I don't suggest you use borrowed money um, in a brokerage account, then over time you're going to underperform. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's sort of like saying, is there ever a place for corporate bonds or something? Uh, I think for high quality corporate bonds, there isn't. Because in the very long run, you will underperform in high-quality corporate bonds than you will by picking your own stocks and holding them. Uh, the stocks will have higher returns. So I don't think people should generally own government bonds. I don't think they should own corporate bonds unless there's special situations where you have a high possible rate of return in them. Now, you can own them basically as a cash you know, alternative. Sure. Obviously, you yeah. can own something that's going to, um, you know, some government obligation that's going to mature in 30 days. That's basically cash, and that's something different that we're talking about. But uh, no, I wouldn't. I would never uh, buy into things that you feel that they have a guaranteed rate of return at much lower percentages, because in the long run, that just leads to worse compounding for you. Underperformance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it just leads to a worse outcome for you personally. The goals that you have in your life and stuff, if they're long-term goals that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a much better chance of reaching them if you're invested in assets that compound at higher rates. So you can convince me that it should be commercial real estate or farmland or something um, instead of stocks, but you can't convince me that it should be um, government bonds that have never been a competitive um, asset class when compared to stocks. You know, over when we're talking 30 years or something, yeah, they compete over five or 10 years, but that's speculative and that's just mm-hmm. seeing, you know, short term what you could get. What matters is the long term compounding and. You know, businesses are going to outperform other forms of uh, assets that you could have. Mm-hmm. Cool. Next question. We haven't had any questions on banks in a long time. Yeah, that's true. Um, and he says, how does Jeff think about the valuation of regional and community banks going forward with the, with the possibility of lower rates and worsening credit conditions? Is this a moment where value investors are being suckered into cyclical industries by low mm-hmm. PEs? Uh, no, I'm not worried at all about that. Now, I should say I don't know much about community banks, but I can talk about regional banks. So we wrote up about mm, probably five uh, regional banks for Singular Diligence, which is a newsletter that I did a few years back. So this would mostly be in the like 2013-2016 period. And uh, we talked about Prosperity Bank shares in Texas, Frost in Texas, Bank of Hawaii in Hawaii, um, and then oh, BOK Financial, uh, which is stickers BOKF, which is Oklahoma, also Texas and some other states. And uh, I think there, we did one other bank, which is St. Louis area. Um, so those are all essentially regional banks, uh, with a couple of them being focused on um, companies, uh, serving pre- uh, fairly large companies in the area. I, specifically, Frost in uh, Texas is, you know, the good aspects of the business I like are mostly serving uh, pretty big uh, Texas uh, businesses. So it's a bit of a business bank that way. Um 
I don't think that those stocks are expensive. Rel- why? Because of rates? Yeah, well, I don't think they're expensive when compared to other uh, companies right now. I would say the same. I mean, here, are they going to grow in the next couple of years? Uh, well, in some cases they will. So like in the case of Frost, yes, they will, because there's going to be, uh, they're just going to get higher yields on their loans over time because Frost is probably lending on average, you know, um, five years when they make the loan on, on average, the, the loans will have been made not this year. So it's actually going to be shorter than the average uh, that they have there. But the um, uh, you will still have some effect from uh, rate increases that you had before. It wasn't that long ago that rates were being increased. So until you go three to five years after rates are being increased, you're not going to have the full effect of all the rate increases in terms mm-hmm. of loans that you have. Um, so you have that. Uh, and then you have the P.E. ratios on them. And the P.E. ratios aren't high. Um, and the P.E. ratios on other stocks are very high. I mean, it's hard when looking at things like, for instance, I can see a future uh, next few years where a lot of those banks don't grow much at all. I can also see a future where a lot of uh, ad agencies don't grow like at all. The difficulty is coming up with a way in which stocks that have much higher P ratios outperform these things. And in some cases we're talking about are 10 to 15 times P's. There's some pretty low P's on some of these regional banks. Uh, you see the same things with ad agencies, very low P's. They're all clustered in that same group. Uh, so I can totally buy the argument that they're not going to grow. The problem is even if they just buy back their stock, even if they just pay dividends, they're very likely not to underperform, uh, you know, tech and things mm-hmm. like that, which people might be a lot more interested in right now. Uh, so I no, I'm not worried about regional banks. I'm also not worried about um, the kinds of loans they've made recently. You, you know, there are exceptions to all of this. There are banks I could name that I would be worried about the kinds of loans they've made. But in general, I just feel like they're in a much safer place than they were, um, you know, at the time of the financial crisis or something like that. I mean, if we were to have a recession in the, even a pretty meaningful recession, I don't think it would register, like saying the results of frost in a big way compared to the recessions that you had in the early '90s and uh, the 2008 financial crisis. Mm-hmm. For banks, you know, the the early '90s and the 2008 one were much worse than I would expect any sort of recession now to be. Not because the economy couldn't do badly, but just because the banks aren't nearly in as bad a situation. They the amount of loan growth and stuff was not high during this uh, boom that we've been having. It just, that's not what was happening. So it, it's very different than we've had at other times that way. So in overall, no, I'm not very concerned about it. And the banks that I like best, you know, um, that I feel are fairly safe banks like um, Frost. Bank I remember Frost, I don't even think Frost has moved that much over the past year. The stock? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's probably true. I don't think that they're overpriced at all, those stocks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially compared to other stocks that are out there. Is that where you'd be looking if you're managing, if your sort of stipulation wasn't just focused on smaller overlooked stocks? Or not smaller you know, overlooked, um, overlooked stocks in general? If I had to manage billions of dollars, yeah. Definitely if I had to manage billions of dollars. If I was managing over a billion dollars, uh, or at least several billion dollars, I would definitely look at um, regional, some regional banks. I'm going to name specifically Frost and Bank of Hawaii is standing out that way. Um, although there are others, and we wrote up plenty of them mm-hmm. um you know uh, as far as like smaller bank really small banks is, might be a different story i i don't necessarily think that really small banks have a lot of advantages and i think they have less and less advantages going forward um because of certain technology things and stuff with scale um but like regional banks when we're talking about one of the biggest banks in the state of texas one of the biggest banks in the state of hawaii things like that yeah 
I actually like those banks quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean I don't like J.P. Morgan and Bank of America either. Yeah. But um, no, I think that right now uh, banks is not a bad place to be. And compared to other stocks, it's definitely not an industry that will worry me. Cool. Hopefully that answers this question. Um, and then the last question, a few podcasts ago, we talked about stock. Okay. And he said, on a recent show, Jeff talked about Majestic Wines. Mm-hmm. What specifically doesn't he like about the company? Oh, uh, <laughs> well, this is a problem because the company announced something that's going to sound really bad when I tell you what I didn't like. So uh, there's a company called Majestic Wines, which did... Um, Originally, larger volume sales. So you had to buy like uh, half k, uh, like six uh, bottles of wine or twelve bottles of ri- wine originally. Um, but it was basically um, uh, just a brick and mortar retailer of slightly higher volumes of wine. Um, it, there's, it, although their stores are very small by American standards, they were pretty big by British standards and doing a pretty big volume of, of sales of wine for a company that focused just on wine. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., we have a bunch of companies that sell, for instance, right where we are, there's like Total Wine and stuff, which sells yeah. every wine imaginable and is one of the biggest stores you've ever been in. And, you know, they it's don't like a warehouse. T- right, they don't tend to have wine warehouses in the U.K. And what they did have is Majestic Wine, and it was the closest thing, I would say, to the, a U.K. wine warehouse. Um it was brick and mortar, and it had some problems because of that, obviously, and also other things, selling wine in, in uh, supermarkets and things like that, competing with them. Um, but there was this entrepreneur who had once been part of um, uh, Richard Branson's Virgin Group, mm-hmm. right, and had done some things there, started up a business there, uh, been involved in the wine business, and had this concept, Naked Wines. And so anyway, he, he ends up being fired or uh, quitting or whatever from uh, the Virgin stuff and uh, does Naked Wines, which is online uh, wine sales. We, you know, And the idea being that people uh, pre-order, they have demand for it, they, they know that there's an audience for it. And so they uh, work with contracting with vineyards and stuff to have the wine produced for them and then sell it. By the way, Total Wine, probably 20 or 30% of the stuff in their store works that exact same way. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, this is exclusive to Total Wine or whatever. That's because they're buying so many cases that they agree to do. Uh, so the same concept, but online. Everyone gets really excited about that. Um, I read about the CEO and some things like that and was not enamored with him. And from reading other people's uh, blog posts and um, posts and forums and things like that, I can tell that other people are really excited by him. Mm-hmm. And I'm intentionally not saying his name because I'm saying a lot of negative things about him. Uh, I was not. The way he communicated and things like that, I thought he was a great salesman, great promoter, uh, probably a very exciting person to have, you know, if you are got a startup or something. I did not want him to be the CEO, chairman, et cetera, of uh, the company. I didn't want him to be in charge of its future direction, and I was worried about that. Um, as it turned out, Majestic Wine acquired that business. It then made him the head of the overall combined company. Mm -hmm. And then very recently it decided it's going to um, sell off or get rid of in some way uh, all of the brick and mortar business. So it's like they're going online. Yeah. Right. Uh, But this is naked wine. It's going to be naked wine. That's all. But I mean, that's all that's going to be left now. Uh Uh, And that's the part that I was least sure of. And more than being least sure of the business of naked wine, I was not sure of the uh, management. And then from that, you shied away. Is yeah. it a bigger company? No, Naked Wine was smaller. Mm-hmm. But faster growing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's grown quite a bit. 
So you don't like and the CEO. And it wasn't very profitable that way. And so you don't like the CEO and kind of where they're going with it. So that's why you shied away. Why do people yeah. like it? Do they look at it like, oh, this is just it a, could grow a lower, a lot co- a lower a great... cost way to, to do it or what? Yeah, it could be the future. Mm-hmm. It could be a great way to do it, sure. Yeah, I don't think that's... Not, I mean, we when we did the report and stuff, we certainly looked at the possibilities of competition from online, just mm-hmm. like what we did when we did a report on PetSmart. Uh-huh. And, you know, competition from online uh, pet food in that case, and lots of things about the possibility that that could happen with um, online wine sales. Um, and it is a big problem in the UK compared to the US because the efficiency of the stores is, it's not like what we're talking about with Total Wine. I mean, to put that in perspective, there are local, like there are companies in the US that are only in a few locations in certain states and stuff. They're not big companies at all that operate much bigger stores than anything I know about in the UK. So the retail offline is not as incredibly efficient. And so it's much more at risk of competition from online there definitely whereas like with the example of like online pet food stuff which is sold a lot in the u.s now but it's sold by something that PetSmart owns but it was hard to compete with it in the u.s compared to europe because PetSmart was a much stronger uh, much more efficiently run store whereas you didn't have stores of that scale and uh, efficiency just in keeping costs down and stuff in in some other countries and so it was much easier for them to have online pet food competition same thing in the UK. I think it's much easier for them to face tough competition in um, in some of their retail stuff, the the, the category killer stuff, you mm-hmm. know, which is what the the wine things we're talking about are. Um, so yeah, uh, the basic thing is, I we talk about you know when assessing management things like candor and um, my ability to predict what they're going to do and and some other things like that, which aren't really measures of how smart they are or how skilled they are in, in doing certain things and how capable they are. And there was nothing about the uh, now CEO of Majestic, which I guess will will be Naked Wine, um, nothing about him that made me feel that the business plan wasn't a good one or uh, that he wasn't capable of carrying it out. I just was not sure um, that I would be confident getting communications and stuff from this person following the stock. I didn't feel I knew it well enough. I felt it was speculative. In no way do I think it's a bad stock. I just think it's a stock I'm much less sure of mm-hmm. um, with him in, in control and uh, with the focus that they now have of being online uh, wine stuff. But I guess a lot of people would agree with that. You know, it's less test and stuff. It, you know, this is a, it's the future that they, sure. that excites them. The pursuit, it's not that yeah. they're, they're so sure of what the outcome will be, I guess. And mm-hmm. maybe this is the complete right way for the business to go. Uh, I'm just much less confident than when I was analyzing the old Majestic wine uh, with a different management and uh, a different strategy. So I just know so much less about this and know so much less about the people involved. I don't have as good a handle on it. So, And there's so many companies where that would be true. I don't talk publicly about it, but there's lots of companies where I've read things and gone, mm, no, I'll pass on. You said feel comfortable with it, yeah. And sometimes because of who's in charge. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't said before, but I don't mind saying because it's a big company. Um, I, I looked really hard at Western Union many uh, a long time ago, and would have done a write up of it for singular diligence and made it a you know pretty high up there thing. Uh, but did not like the CEO, uh, and not that I didn't like the CEO's abilities or anything like that. Did not like the way the CEO communicated about things. And so, was it was just, just like no. very vague or what? Uh, yeah, didn't take responsibility for certain things that they should have, and um. You tried to guide expectations about what investors should expect that I think were 
shaping the narrative of what to say the company was doing and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's not uncommon for it's not uncommon at all for companies to do that. Um, but when combined with a business that you need to be able to see certain things about what's going on, it can be misleading in terms of understanding the uh, basic things that are happening with customers and stuff like that, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, I would say, yeah, a lot of times they would do that um, when they would talk, for instance, Western Union uses the term pricing investment to mean uh, that they've cut the price of their, uh, their, their fees, which they do all the time. Western Union strategy forever had been, you lower the fees, you get more volume, you lower the fees, you get more volume. And across a, like a payment processing network that they have, you make more and more money by doing that while um, your average fee always goes down and stuff like that. Uh, but they were not, I felt it's doing a good job of explaining why they were doing that because of customer behavior in certain, uh, places sending from one country to another in certain places like us or Mexico or something. I think they cut it for very good reasons that they knew about customer behavior on those things. And they didn't really talk openly about that. And, um, I felt it makes it opaque and there are aspects of majestic wine with the management that they have now. Uh, where I feel the same way. Not that I feel things will go badly, but I think that if things are going badly inside the company, uh, they will. it will be harder to know that because they'll put a spin on it uh, when they talk to investors. That will make it a little more opaque in terms of what is really going on. They'll sure. tell you a lot about their plans and what they're going to do and yeah. all their ways of fixing things, but they won't really tell you what the problems are that they need to fix, you know? And that might be unfair. I don't know that much about him. I didn't read that many articles and interviews and things like that before. But That was just the general impression you got. Yeah, but it was enough that we didn't do Majestic Wine because of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. So there have been <laughs> others where I passed just because yeah. of the people involved. And it has nothing to do with concerns about any sort of, you know, all these things that people worry about, about accounting things and whatever things. Yeah. It's nothing like that. It really is just, I don't feel like compared to the stocks that we have in the managed accounts. Okay. The, the, these are the candor that management has when talking about things in the annual letter and stuff is just not going to be the same, you know? Sure. However, I do think he's an excellent salesman of the concept and a salesman of himself and a very smart person. There you go. We could leave it on a good note. Yeah. <laughs> we'll leave it on a good note. Uh, thank you so much to everybody for tuning in with us here today. If you do like what we're doing, feel free to give us a rating review. If you also want to be added to Jeff's weekly memo list, focuscompounding.com, you'll mm-hmm. see a spot to enter in your email. If you want to reach out to him, gannoninvesting at gmail.com, me, info at focusedcompounding.com, or you could just follow me on Twitter at Focused Compound, where you can send me questions and we will pull them and talk about them on the show. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for everybody for tuning in with us. Make it a good week. We'll see you in the next one. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscombating.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.